0: So our reading this morning is from Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 27. It's in your booklets, on the screen, and in your Bibles. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king, and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten miners. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he would given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your miner has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because he had been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your miner has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, "'Sir, here is your miner. "'I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. "'I was afraid of you because you were a hard man. "'You take out what you did not put in "'and reap what you did not sow.' "'His master replied, "'I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. "'You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, "'taking out what I did not put in "'and reaping what I did not sow?' Why then didn't you put my deposit and my money on deposit so that when I come back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take his miner away from him and give it to the one who has ten miners. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine, who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me.
1: Well, thank you. It's uh, been lovely to be with you for the weekend. So thanks for the invitation. I've had a great time. Um, I do rather enjoy what I do. You picked that up? I I, I like what I do. And it's lovely to do it with people who been so warm and responsive, so thank you so much, it's been a great weekend, but I'm going back to the lovely Sarah tomorrow, and that'll be even better. Uh, I want to tell you a story, a true story, about a, a book that nobody read. Uh, it was written a long time ago, uh, in 1898, by a man called Morgan Robertson, it was a novel he wrote, uh, about a ship, a great ship that sailed the Atlantic. It was full of the rich and the easygoing, and uh, one April night, the ship hit an iceberg and sank. And the novel was really a parable of life. Here are all these people with all their wealth. It all ends up in the bottom of the ocean. It showed life's futility. In fact, he called the book Futility. You can find it on the web in the library. 1898, and nobody read it. Fourteen years later, a British shipping company called the White Star Line built a ship remarkably like the one that Robertson had invented. The real ship weighed 66,000 tonnes displacement. Robertson's, 70,000. The rear ship was 882 feet long, Robertson's 800. The rear ship had 16 watertight compartments, Robertson's 19. Both had three large propellers. Both had two large masts. Both could do 24 to 25 knots. Both could carry 3,000 passengers and both had only enough lifeboats for a fraction that number, because both boats were labelled unsinkable. On April 10th, the real ship left Southampton on its maiden voyage, carrying people worth, back then, a quarter of a billion pounds. In Robertson's fictional story, the ship struck the iceberg at near midnight. The real ship struck the iceberg at 11:40 pm. You all know the real ship. It was the Titanic. Robertson called his make-believe ship "The Titan." And nobody read the book. The story of the sinking of the unsinkable Titanic still grips our imagination, What the subject of the second most popular movie of all time. Uh, I love the story in a sense because it is, it is a parable, I think. Uh, the early 20th century was a time of great optimism in the Western world. We'd made enormous proge- pro- progress in science, technology, medicine, industry, uh, people have found, new, newfound wealth. And I think we really thought back then we could or would almost about to overcome all our great problems, war, poverty, disease, and it was all summed up in our greatest engineering achievement. We had built a ship that could not sink. Even after the iceberg struck, one woman asked, I was leaving her cabin, was asked a deckhand, excuse me, sir, Is this ship unsinkable? He replied, Madam, God Himself could not sink this ship. I told this I've told this story many times over the years. Uh, One time in a church in Sydney I told the story, and a man was there in the church whose grandfather had helped to build the ship in, in Belfast. And the story goes. I guess the grandfather told his grandson years later. Coming home from work one day, really angry because a man had carved on a rivet of one of the what, ship of what, the ship these words, "I defy God to sink this ship." Well, sometimes Tom, God gives a sign. <laughs> you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. And it is kind of a parable, I think, because in a sense, we are on the Titanic, aren't we? SS Earth, heading for the iceberg. It's called in the Bible the Day of Judgment. It'll all come crashing down. All come crashing down. And the question is this, knowing that, knowing we're on board the ship, knowing the end of our life and our world, how then should we live? Between Southampton and New York, or Southampton and the iceberg, how then should we live? That's, I think, the the question this story poses, this parable. We followed for these few couple of days, or these five talks, our Lord's journey, as it were, from uh, setting his face towards Jerusalem and the cross. He's given teaching about the life of discipleship. And now we come to the very end of the journey, I think it's the last stage. Now now he really enters Jerusalem and he he faces the cross at the end of the journey. And he ends the journey, which is beginning for 10 chapters, with this very powerful parable about how we live. So I want you to really listen up as I I leave you today with this confronting, I think, and fearful parable about how we live as disciples. And we know how to interpret the parable because he gives us a clue in the very first verse. Just look at verse 11. Look at how it begins. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. Listening to what? Well, if you remember the talk yesterday about Zacchaeus, he's in Jericho. Zacchaeus has found salvation. He's just said, uh, verse verse 9, today salvation has come to this house, Because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. While they were listening to this, he told a parable. So the whole context is salvation. He just said, Today is the day of salvation. Now the Jews didn't believe that. They thought tomorrow was salvation. At the end of the age, God will wrap things up, then God's people are saved. But our Lord says, No. Now, today, God is saving people. Now's the hour of salvation. And he goes on to say, uh, Luke, he, he told a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. See, Jews thought Messiah will come. He'll come to his holy city, to the temple. And in the age, wrap up history, destroy the enemies, kick out the Romans, then all the nations will flood to Zion and find salvation. And and Messiah has come, Jesus. Where's he going? Jerusalem. Where? The temple. Oh, put two and two together. It's the end of the age. It's all over. Any moment now, Romans destroyed, we're saved. So he tells a parable. Lest they think it's all going to end with him going to Jerusalem. In fact, in a sense, it... It will all begin, the beginning of a new age, an age of salvation. So he tells a parable to set them right, lest they think wrongly about his going to Jerusalem. Let's think about the parable. It's very well known. It's in Matthew under the, the title of the talents, about a noble man, clearly Jesus, who goes away to receive a kingdom. He's gone to heaven to receive all authority. He called together his servants, 10 of them. You and me, I think. He gives them a minor or a minor. Uh What's a minnow? Well, it's about, it's money. About three or four months wages, where if a king went to Rome to get the kingdom, it'd be a three or four month journey. So three or four months away, it stands for money. Uh, if you read Luke's gospel, all of it, gee, our Lord speaks a lot about money, doesn't he? Again and again and again and again. I wonder if in his mind back then was Adelaide. I think it probably was. Or, or Australia, or the West. You know, the, the rich fool, Lazarus the rich man, the unjust steward, rich young ruler, just ham, again and again he hammers it. we we'll give, we'll give him money to invest for him. But more than that, I think, in, in Matthew it's called the parable of the talents. The word is talentos. And I think, I think we've rightly seen the gift of God as more than just money, it's the things God gives us. It's the gift of music and and IT and sound and medicine and teaching and cooking. All, all the gifts God gives to his people abundance to to use for him. Money, gifts. But I think more than that actually. In, in the parable of the sower, the disciples ask our Lord, why, why do you teach him parables? And he says this, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but not to them. The one who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever doesn't have, even what he has, will be taken away from him. You've been given the secrets of the kingdom. You've been given, I've been given the secrets of the kingdom, haven't we? We know that Jesus Christ is Lord. We know He died for sins, we know He rose again, we know He's coming back. We know that out there, they don't know that in the hills. They don't we we know that. To those who have, much is given. But to have that knowledge and to bury it is taken away. So you find in the parable here the very same words about the man who buries. His minor, the very same words. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. And from the one who does not have, even what he has is taken away. So I think the minor is it's money. It's our various gifts and our knowledge of the gospel. And the king, the nobleman, has one command. I think the, another version says, engage in business until I come. That's my last word to you this weekend, not the end of the sermon just yet, but just, oh good, get home early. No, not yet. Uh, But it's this, engage in business until I come. Um, Some years ago, I did what many folk do, and I I employed a financial advisor. I just came back from Pakistan. I didn't have much, but I gave it to him. His name was Santino. And I just, I just gave my money uh, and we used to meet every year, once a year over the years. And I just said one, we just meet one thing over coffee. Santino, show me the money. Show me the money. I employed you for one reason only, to make money for me. That's your raison d'etre. So you, you get up in the morning to make money for me. That's why you live. That's your job, make money for me. How much have I made this year? Uh, if you were to say to me, uh, uh, look, Mike, uh, we've been friends now for 10 years and we're buddies, and look, this is my 20th wedding anniversary, and my wife just loves the Greek islands. So <laughs> I hope you don't mind, but I've taken your money. Look, we had a great time, like a second honeymoon. I hope you don't mind. I'd say, Santino, that's not why I gave you the money to indulge in yourself. Go to jail. Go directly to jail. And if you collect $200, it's mine, okay? (laughs) That's not why I gave you the money to indulge in yourself. I'd be outraged. Wouldn't you? Engage in business until I come. Now that I'm getting a bit older, I'm often asked by people, are you retired? Are you thinking of retirement? You've got to be joking i don 't I don't, I don't believe in it I do it is biblical it 's called rest in the Bible. rest takes place after you die, not before you die, it takes place in heaven it does, and, and until then I work till then I engage in business until I come or you die not until you 're fifty five or, or or sixty it's actually it worries me it worries me to look around our churches at retirees are just I don't mind the trip around Australia, occasionally, but the endless, the endless great nomads. If you're there on ministry, fine, but it worries me that we believe the world. I met, I was preaching in Brisbane a few years ago on a similar topic. Uh, and I said what I'm saying right now, and a guy at the door shook my hand. He took uh, medical retirement 24 years ago. And he was, he was fairly healthy. So I said, what have you been doing for the last 24 years? He said, and I quote, oh, just drifting? I thought one day, mate, it won't be me who asks you. it be somebody else. And he'll say to you, I gave you 24 years of fairly good health. What did you do with it? You don't want to say to him, I just drifted. I do worry when I look out over some of my churches they speak at, at the drifters. I do worry. And he says, Engage in business until I come. I, I told the folk at the network meeting on the Trinity Network meeting on Thursday, I was speaking in Perth a few years ago at a church one evening. And uh, as a Baptist pastor there, he's he's about to start to pastor a church in Perth. He went in the morning to kind of check out the church, have a look-see at the church he'd pastor, and then came to us at night. That morning, uh, they had a guest speaker, uh, a man in a wheelchair. And he gave his sermon, closed in prayer, and there and then dropped dead. In the service. In the service, he dropped dead. There's a sermon you wouldn't forget for a while. That's, it's very sad. Well, what can I say as a preacher? I thought to myself afterwards. If I'm going to go, hey Karen, what a way to go! What a way! To what, a way to, what a way to go! What really? I mean, in the saddle with your boots on, preaching! What a way to, go uh, Lord, not. Um, right now I've got, I've got an important lunch to minister to people but what a way to, a way to be terrific I mean to, 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 to die serving Jesus whether you are preachers, to die serving with his words on my mouth as I die what a great way to go terrific I, I, my son Joel buys me gifts for my birthday Offered the the gifts to music com- concerts in Melbourne of my kind of music I mean real music when they made proper music you know, remember, remember the day you know, when I, I went to a poor Simon concert that's, you remember Simon Gofunkel? Hello, Dr. friend. Uh, poor Simon, he, he, he played for two and a half hours, didn't even stop for a breath. He said, he said a terrific, fantastic voice. Two and a half hours. This was three years ago. Fact that he was seven, 72. 72. He's still going flat out doing what he loves. I found it very, I was quite rebuked. I thought to myself, if poor Simon, can take folk to Graceland in Memphis, Tennessee when he's 72. I can take people to the Graceland when I'm 72. Amen? Amen. I, I met a guy some years ago in Afghanistan. I was there for a little while preaching. Um, a, a guy there, a Lon- retired London Bobby, retired at 55, went to Afghanistan to teach English and share the love of Jesus, having a great time, wonderful. I'm not saying today you should go to Afghanistan, on the other hand. (laughs) But really, uh, engage, beloved, particularly those of you of a more mature vintage. Engage in business until I come or until I call you into my presence. Then we have, don't we, the story of the, the two responses. The, first of all, the two faithful servants. One uh, makes 10 minors more, one makes five. And the Lord just abundantly blesses them. Take charge of 10 cities. Now, I don't know what we'll do in the age to come and the new creation, but we won't just, thank God, sit on, harp, sit on clouds and play harps or sit on harps and play clouds. We, we won't do that. We'll work. Thank God we'll work in, in the, the new creation, on the new earth, we'll work. Now, how, what shape that takes, I don't know, but take charge of 10 cities. Take charge of five. It's true in our world. You run the section well, you're made department head, right? Run the department well, you're made CEO. That's the picture here. Faithful here, given more responsibility there. Wonderful. Then the other one, the third one. It's striking what we're not told about him. We're not told he was an idolater or an adulterer, or a tax fraud, or a wife beater. None of that. Nice bloke, probably. Maybe even an upright member of your church. Just did nothing. Just did nothing. Just saw somebody by the side of the road, battered and bruised and just walked on by. Just saw somebody naked and didn't clothe them. Somebody hungry didn't feed them. Had the resources. Someone thirsty thirsty, didn't even give them a drink. Just did nothing. The Lord calls him a wicked servant and casts him out of his presence forever. So the noble man is Jesus. The miner is my money, my gifts. I know in the gospel, but what's, what's the profit you want? What's the 10 miners more or the 5 miners more? What's that, Lord? That's where the context is important. Today, salvation came to this house. The great theme of Luke's gospel is salvation. Mary's song, who rejoices in God my Saviour i come to preach good news to the poor. It ends with the apostle sent out to proclaim forgiveness. It's salvation. That's what he wants. Work from you and I that have touched people, blessed people, for Jesus' sake, for eternity. You've used your money, your, your, your talents, you're knowing the gospel to bless someone else for Jesus' sake, for eternity. Uh, when I taught at more college, I used to run college missions. We led one one time up to Karatha, Dampier, in northwest Australia. It's a major seaport. And they had there a seafarer's mission. They have them all over the country. Uh, ships would dock at the seaport, and then uh, sailors would leave the ship, give them permission to leave the ship on a bus and take them to the centre. It was a lovely centre, brand new. It had a a, a tuck shop. You could buy your coffee and cakes and whatnot. A gift shop. You could buy your stuffed koalas, your stuffed kangaroos, your stuffed Kylie Minogue. All the little kind of (laughs) mementos of Australia. You can go into a room that you can play snooker and just relax. And the the Christians get around, just talk to people. Just chat to them. And that night, about 25 Indian sailors I uh, disembarked from a ship, came to the centre. I led a little team of more College students and we just sat around and talked to them. And one of our guys, Scott, a young Asian guy, just be- began talking to a middle-aged Indian sailor for a couple of hours. And he prayed for him and then said goodbye. And I think he gave him a Bible and away he went, back in the ship. A few weeks later, Scott received a letter from this, this Indian Muslim. I'll read part of it to you. It is a stunning letter. Dear loving Scott, I'm very anxious to write to you that your prayer has been rewarded by the loving Heavenly Father and Lord Jesus Christ, who longing to pour his blessings on me. Now I have enough courage to accept Jesus as my Saviour for the rest of my life. Let me declare before you that I pray daily in front of Jesus Christ. Be praises upon Father, Son, and Spirit. Did you hear that? This Muslim, in a moment, is now a Trinitarian believer. I declare before you that I think that it is because of your prayer I could believe Jesus as my saviour. visited so many seafarers clubs throughout the world in the last 23 years of my sea life. But took the Holy Bible only one time. But I did not read it or believe it. But to see how the Bible is different from Holy Quran. Though I have had inner concerns developed later to accept and believe in the good news, only this time I started reading the Bible with great enthusiasm and great spirit. I think that it is because of the power and love I got from your prayer for me. Now I understand the truth and humbly accept that true love comes from Heavenly Father now I accept Jesus Christ as son of heavenly father to follow him forever but not as a prophet for the time being until the time of Muhammad now I believe my lord Jesus Christ has made a journey to die for me with love unutterable end of quote that's incredible And what did Scott do? He prayed for him. Yes, he witnessed, but he wasn't the great evangelist. But Scott could pray. He knew the gospel. And he blessed this man for Jesus' sake, for eternity, by praying. Now, I, I know the world of Islam. He'll go back to India, to his family. And I know what they'll probably do. Take away his wife and kids. In other words, he will need to persevere many, many more Scots in his life. Maybe take him in. Give him work, give him meals. Just, just care for him. So he can persevere till the end. People will use their gifts, their various gifts, to care for him for Jesus sake for eternity that's, that's what he wants from us beloved on the SS earth as you head for that day to use our money your gifts of prayer cooking caring, loving, giving praying, teaching preaching, Sunday school, youth work what, just all of them to help us persevere he's coming back and he'll want to know. He'll want to know. I love the story of a missionary called Evelyn Brand, born late 19th century. In a well-to-do family in Britain, Christian family, uh, went to India as a single woman, uh, about the 1920s, uh, to work in the Death Mountains. Met there a man called uh, Jesse Brand, married Jesse, had two kids. Uh, they, they had clinics, for so the poor, the sick, she, they taught the people basic farming, ran little schools and preached Jesus. In his early 40s, Jesse died. Evelyn went back to the UK with two small children, broken down in grief and pain, but put the children in boarding school and returned to India to work there in the Death Mountains. At 67, she fell and broke her hip. By that time, her son, Paul, Paul Brand, was there. A famous doctor. He said, Mum, you've been here what, 40 years. Time to go home. She said, Paul, if I go home, who will care for these people? Who will tend their wounds? Who will teach them about Jesus? When I'm replaced, I'll go. Until then, I'll stay. And she did. For another 30 years. She died at 95. And by her wishes they, they buried her in a simple white cloth in the ground in the Death Mountains of India. And someone who knew her said she was the most alive person they had ever met. And she engaged in business until he called her home. Again, I'm not saying go to the Death Mountains. On the other hand, CMS, my co-worker, John Sugars, has just resigned. He does my admin. They're off, God willing, to Dubai to begin their work there. He's 60 with his wife to begin their work there. You know, we talk about you know, 60 to the new 50 and 70 to the new 60. It's true. And in much of the world, unlike Australia, the colour of my hair is an advantage. They respect the aged. So can I say to you, who are of a mature vintage, there's so many openings for you overseas and needs. If you are going to be a grey nomad, why not travel around Africa or India or Eastern Europe and bear fruit for the kingdom? As you think about your future, your careers. Ask yourself, how would the gift God's given me in nursing, teaching, IT, homemaking, whatever it might be, how can I use this to bless people for the kingdom, for Jesus' sake, for eternity? This is a scary passage. It's a fearful thing to be a believer. He's a loving God, but we'll answer to him one day. So let's rejoice in our assurance but never presume on that and become a drifting Christian. One of the uh, highlights of of Christian history was the 19th century and men like Wilberforce who changed the world by their work as politicians. And and a historian of that time said that one of the great essentials of Christian belief back then was a belief in the existence of an afterlife of rewards and punishments. They just believed that. So if one asks how the 19th century English merchant earned the reputation of being the most honest in the world, the answer is because heaven and hell seemed as certain to them as tomorrow's sunrise and the last judgment as real as the week's balance sheet. They lived in the light of the last day. One of Wilberforce's contemporaries, a man called Henry Thornton, was in Parliament and one day voted against the Prime Minister, William Pitt. And Pitt said, why did you vote against me? And Thornton said this, I voted today... So that if my Lord had come again at that moment, I might have been able to give an account of my stewardship. Because, Mr. Pitt, I don't answer to you. And all joking aside, if God forbid, this is my last sermon. If God forbid on the flight home, I'm brought into his presence. I want in this sermon to give an account of my stewardship. To have been found faithful. Not to stand before God on that last day and ask me, Mike, you taught Bible college, you taught the gospel, I gave you money, I gave you gifts. Show me the money. Here they are, Lord. The saints at Trinity Hills. That's partly why I'm here this weekend. Because I am a greedy man. I'm a greedy man. Oh, not for money, not for fame. But I'm. I I love. I love to be with Sarah. I, I like to be with you. I love to be with Sarah. I'll pick coffee with her any day over Cameron Munro. Any day. (laughs) But I come here because of you and because I've been given a gift and I want to bless you with it. That's why I do it. So I want you to join me in being godly greedy. Godly greedy. With your life. Greedy, to bless as many as you can with the gifts God's given you for Jesus' sake. Greedy to build up treasure in heaven. Greedy for the glory of God. Greedy for the blessing of others. Because he's coming back. And you will want to know. We've heard over these two days about his amazing grace. We've heard how we can depend upon him. We've heard how there's so much to be thankful for. And we believe it all and we rejoice in it all. So let's hear one more word from our loving master. My dear children, engage in business until I come. I'm just going to pause now um, and just think about myself and my life and just reflect upon your life and your days and your gifts and just have a moment of quiet reflection you and God and how I don't want to put I don't want to put a burden on those of you who are overworked in the kingdom. It's the last thing I want. But I do want us all to be found on that day faithful servants of him. Let's just take for a moment and perhaps just be quiet and think and reflect and pray. Then I'll close in a moment. being so incredibly generous to us. You've given us uh, the most precious thing, the, the gift of your own son, that he who was rich became poor for our sake, that we might use our riches, both financial and giftedness and knowledge, to bless the poor around us. So please, we pray, help us to look at our lives honestly. We do want to please you. We do want to bless others. But we want to hear on that day, as we stand before the throne, those wonderful words. Well done, Richard. Well done, Cameron well done Mel and Tony and Greg and and Michael Well, well done good and faithful servant come receive the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world so keep us we pray by your mighty power persevering with faith and with productivity until that glorious day, for Jesus' sake. Amen.